Welcome to the CMS Colloquium. Um, this is Henry Jenkins for those listening via podcast. It's pointless to those of you in this room. Uh, we're joined today by Timothy Stoneman, uh, who is a visiting scholar in the STS program here at MIT. And most of you know because he's been sitting into both the Williams classes, so I suspect you've all met him through that. So that said, I'm just going to turn it over to him and let him get started. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for coming. I know I have a captive audience, but I <laughs> appreciate your coming nonetheless. I must say this is the largest audience that I've ever spoken to. Most of the conferences I go to are voluntary, so you get about three or four people. So I will try my best to rise to the occasion. Uh, Henry mentioned that I am a postdoc in STS. I just recently graduated in the spring. Actually, I defended back in November at the PhD in the history of technology from Georgia Tech. So that's, just so you understand, that's the background that I sort of come at this with. I'm new to media studies. I'm happy, uh, happy invitee to the table. But one of the things I want to do is to try and contextualize my work within the framework of media studies. That's one of my goals for tonight and my participation in the program. So the talk I'm going to give today really has three parts to it, just so you can plan your sitting time here. Uh, we'll go for about 45 minutes to an hour, somewhere in there. The first part, what I'm going to try and do is set the sort of broad framework for my analysis by looking at the rise of global Christianity and the rise of global Christian media, something that you may or may not be aware of. I then want to shift in the sort of the middle third of the talk to, to really looking at my own project pretty closely, giving you some, uh, some idea about what I do. I think, I hope it'll be a useful lens for those of you that are constructing your own research projects. You know, how do you, how do you tackle the kinds of questions that I'm asking? You know, how do you... How do you evaluate the role of media evangelism in the rise of, of global Christianity? How would you tackle a big question like that? It's not an easy thing to do. So one of the things that we can talk about later, perhaps, is the question of methods. So I want to open that box up, if you will, for, for your input and analysis. And then lastly, I want to tie it in, in the last third of the talk, look at some particular themes in media studies and how they may relate to, to what I'm doing. So having settled that, let me go ahead and begin You might think that the, the recent rise of conservative evangelicalism in the United States in the past two decades is a local phenomenon limited to the U.S., but in fact, it is not. It's part of a much larger resurgence of evangelicalism in the Southern Hemisphere. In fact, a sea change, uh, greater in scale and significance even than the Protestant Reformation, is underway uh, in the world around us. We're experiencing what some have called the third wave of Protestant expansion in world history. The first wave being the Reformation of the 16th century, the second wave, the Industrial Revolution, and the rise of Methodism and Anglo-American evangelicalism. And currently, in the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, the rise of global evangelicalism and Pentecostal charismatic spirituality. The result of this third wave of Protestant expansion is a decisive shift of gravity within Christianity from the global north to the global south. To put this in perspective, let me give you a few uh, numbers. From 1970 to 2005, the southern church quadrupled in size to over uh, one and a quarter billion members. Evangelical or Protestant churches have increased at nearly twice the rate of other Christian groups during the same time period. So other groups, including the Catholic Church, have grown as well. But what's remarkable is that the source of dynamic growth is coming from conservative evangelical and Pentecostal churches. One out of five Christians in the world today comes from Africa. 
By 2050, more than half the world's Christians, it is projected, will be living in Africa and Latin America. 17% of those will also be living in Asia. Let me ask you an interesting question. What do you think are, are the countries right now in the world with the largest Christian populations? Anybody want to take a guess? Mexico. Very good. Anybody else? The United States is still the, the largest. <laughs> largest population or half a dozen? Uh, largest popul- total, total number. Well, I won't, I won't put you on the spot, but it is um, the United States, then Mexico, Brazil, Nigeria, Congo. Congo, which, by the way, is 93% Christian, uh, Ethiopia, and the Philippines. More than twice as many evangelical Christians uh, lived in Brazil and Nigeria in 2001 than in Britain. So this gives you an idea of the dramatic shifts that are taking place in the world around us. And what is the southern church? The southern church is understood as the church in the southern hemisphere, sort of broadly understood. Yeah, Asia, Africa, Latin America. Yeah, you know, it's okay. No, it's, it's, a, it's fine. This is, a, this is a dialogue. Okay. And it's important to realize it's not just about a shift in numbers. I mean, that's obviously what I'm emphasizing here for purposes of, of clarity. But it's also a shift in the source of dynamism. This is where the church is growing most rapidly. It's where it's experiencing the most dynamic uh, growth. And it has profound long-term implications for areas such as Christian theology, and ecclesiology, that is how the church is organized and, and, and how it views itself, as well as for the balance of global politics. Christianity is increasing in those parts of the world which are not only the economically poorest, but are also those parts of the world which are growing at the fastest rates in terms of just, just general population growth. So this, these trends are only going to continue in, in the future. The resurgence of global Christianity has begun in the last sort of four or five years to catch the attention of scholars and, and other writers um, in the West. That's only been very, very recently. Let me give you a few salient examples. Uh, there's an important book uh, by Philip Jenkins, which was written in 2002, published by Oxford University Press, called The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity. He is a, a professor of sociology at Penn State. Uh, a more popular account by a bureau chief, the New York Times bureau chief, named uh, David Aikman, Jesus in Beijing, how Christianity is uh, revolutionizing China or transforming China and changing the global balance of power. Uh, Aikman argues that there may be as many as 80 million Christians in China, as much as 8% of the population. And then lastly, a little bit closer to home, I have a scholar named uh, at Harvard Divinity School named Patrick Provost-Smith, who is organizing a Journal of World Christianity. Uh, and I mention that only because when a journal is organized, it's, it's a, a telltale sign that a new field is emerging. And this field will combine, uh, well, you know, this emerging field of world Christian studies will combine both the history of Christianity, anthropology, religious studies, social and political theory, etc. So that's the, glo- the growth of global Christianity. Now I want to just mention, talk a little bit about the growth of global Christian media, which has happened right alongside it. The growth of global Christianity has been accompanied by the rise of global Christian media. Uh, There are now, uh, I should say, in the last uh, quarter of the 20th century, the number of Christian radio and television stations in the world more than quadrupled to 4,000. There are, by 1980, there were over 500 
Christian stations in Latin America alone. I don't have the figure for, for 2006, but obviously it's even higher today. In addition, there are the, the rise of uh, global Christian uh, uh, satellite networks like Paul and Jan Crouch's Trinity Broadcasting Network that you probably have heard of, or Pat Robertson's Christian Broadcasting Network. And these networks can be heard as readily around the world as CNN. Trinity Broadcasting Network can, can right, rightfully claim preeminence as the world's largest religious broadcaster. It has programs carried on 47 satellites around the world and has over 12,000 TV and cable affiliates around the world, claims to reach over 50 million broadcast households. Let me see if this works. I, I have a fascinating little clip that I thought you might enjoy if, uh, if all goes well here. Okay, you ready? Let's see. Hopefully this will come up. Do you need sound? Yeah, I need some sound, but also it's, I got to, for some reason it's not, um, well, I don't know why it's not showing the, uh, hmm. Let me. This is why when you use someone else's computer you get, Yeah, you get thrown off. All right, I can't go back to where I was. I want to go back to the, my PowerPoint, so I need your... I need your um... So now we're totally messed up. You have to come... Yeah, can you help me? I apologize for this interruption. This is what you try to do multimedia. I had a great little film clip to show you, but video clip, but uh, I guess it'll have to wait. It's actually, I did it, you know, I did it in my office and it showed up fine. Yeah, hit PowerPoint again. There you go. Try real quick. See if you can get that to, see, there should be a video clip right here, a little icon for, you're going to help me out here. I know. There you go. Thank you. You're a good man. Here we go. When you want to switch back, okay. just well, go no, you, stay, you stay right here. Okay. <laughs> From California to New York, London to Cape Town. Moscow to Baghdad, Calcutta to Shanghai, and Sydney to Buenos Aires. TBN is touching billions now. Our flagship program, Praise the Lord, covers the globe from studios across North America. Miami, Atlanta, Dallas, Costa Mesa, and Nashville are just some of the cities that present the Praise the Lord program and feature a variety of talented hosts who welcome powerful and dynamic guests like Franklin Graham, A.C. Green, Stephen Baldwin, Okay, we go back to the... Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. <laughs> it's just getting interesting, right? We would sit and watch that and thanks, that's great. All right, I know that would be hard to break away from, but... Uh... So I love that motto on TBN, you know, touching billions now. It's not thousands or millions, it's billions. So this is a, this is a clearly a media conglomerate with, with global outreach. Uh, CBN uh, makes, makes comparable boasts. It claims to reach 200 countries with its programming via cable, broadcast, and satellite in over 70 languages. And it makes the astounding claim that in the last 15 years it has... Uh, converted nearly 370 million people who have, quote, prayed with a CBN program to receive Jesus. This is on their website. Now, whether you want to believe that or not, that's a different question, but that's what they're claiming. 
Global networks provide ready outlets for American preachers and televangelists. And the example I chose here uh, oopsie, uh, is a man named Charles Stanley, who is a 70-year-old uh, Baptist pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta. Uh, I mention him because I have a personal connection. My wife actually happens to work for him, and, uh, which is why I sort of have an inside track on all this. But I, she got an email the other day, which I thought was very telling. It's just a typical you know, standard-of-the-mill stuff. But it says, Dear In Touch staff, please join us in celebrating the commencement of the Korean TV broadcast. The In Touch broadcast with Korean subtitles went on the air today. This was uh, Monday, October 30th, KST, Korean Standard Time. The CTS, Christian's Television System Cable Broadcast, reaches over 11 million households in South Korea. Further, the broadcast via satellite on PAS7, DirecTV, and Mukungawa reaches many more Koreans living in the U.S., Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. The Republic of Korea is located in East Asia, etc. With close to 49 million people, South Korea has one of the world's highest population densities. It's an ideal market, isn't it, for a television producer? Please pray that the Korean-speaking people will respond to the word of God. So this is what's, uh, you know, this is what's going on around you, uh, perhaps unaware. And, of course, Charles Stanley is, is just one example. In fact, he's a very old school uh, in terms of his use of media, as perhaps Henry might tell you from his own knowledge. But uh, there are other much more dynamic uh, evangelists like T.D. Jakes, you've heard about perhaps Kenneth Hagin, um, Benny Hinn, who have massive uh, crusades overseas and uh, huge audiences in Africa and Asia and Latin America. <clears throat> and what's interesting and very important to realize is that not only are these American programs being exported around the world, but they're being emulated by local Christian leaders who are building their own megachurches in places like Accra and Lagos, Johannesburg and Manila, Rio de Janeiro. The rise of global televangelism <clears throat> has been preceded by the rise of international Christian radio. This is where my own work comes in. Evangelical radio stations that operate internationally and that originated in the United States are known in, in academic terms as international religious broadcasters, or IRBs. <clears throat> the major IRBs in the world today are HCJB, which operates in Latin America with its headquarters in Ecuador, Transworld Radio, which operates out of Monte Carlo in Monaco, and Far East Broadcasting, which is originally out of the Philippines but now spans all of Asia. And again, this is the end of these nauseating figures that I'm going to throw at you, but <clears throat> let me just give you a couple more numbers to give you a sense of the scale of the operations of these, these radio outlets. In 2003, Transworld Radio operated 13 separate superpower transmitter sites around the world and broadcast over 1,800 hours of gospel programs a week in 180 languages. Now, just to put that in perspective, 180 languages is a lot of languages. Um, the VOA only broadcasts in about 40 languages. That's the VOA is the official government, uh, American government radio service. And in fact, 180 languages is more than the VOA, the BBC, China Radio International, and the Voice of Russia combined. And that's one, just one single evangelical uh, chain or network of stations. TWR, Transworld Radio, gets a million and a half letters a year from listeners. A million and a half letters in 160 different countries. Uh, Far East Broadcasting, again, a separate operation, but comparable numbers. In 2005, uh, Far East Broadcasting and its affiliate local stations broadcast over 4,000 hours of programming a week in 160 languages 
This is separate from Transworld Radio. You add those together, you've got, what, over 320 languages, 340 languages, <clears throat> on 150 stations in nearly over 90 cities and 14 countries around the world. So, to say the least, IRBs, <clears throat> as one arm of the global Christian media, have a tremendous footprint in the global media and cultural landscape. Yeah. Would this be AM, FM, shortwave, or all, all combined? All combined. The whole world. Uh, it's moving more and more into FM uh, at the local level. It's moving out of shortwave, but that's, yeah, that's not that's fine. So just to briefly summarize before I move on here, global Christianity is an emerging phenomenon. It's growing very rapidly in the southern hemisphere, and its growth has been heavily intertwined with the use of mass broadcast media. <clears throat> now what I want to do now is, is segue into my own work uh, on the history of missionary radio to try and trace the origins of this, this phenomenon, if you will. And so to do that, I want to begin by tracing the historical background briefly of these major international radio broadcasters. So, a brief history of missionary radio uh, as a preface to talking about my dissertation. Missionary radio was begun in 1931 uh, by a man named Clarence Jones. Here he's pictured uh, about 1927 with his family. Jones was a radio station manager and evangelist in Chicago, he was a disciple, a protege of Paul Rader, a convert of Paul Rader's. Paul Rader was one of the earliest and most enthusiastic uh, users of radio in the early 1920s for religious purposes of evangelism and church growth. Jones uh, hooked up with a veteran missionary, Protestant missionary in Ecuador named Ruben Larson. And in 1931, in Quito, uh, Larson and Jones began and established the first missionary radio station in the world. I should mention parenthetically, you might find it interesting that 1931 is also the first year of Radio Vatican, when the, the, the Pope, uh, with the aid of Guglielmo, Guglielmo Marconi, when the Catholic Church uh, and the Pope's leadership initiated a broadcast service as well. Like most missionary stations, HCJB began in 1931 on a very, very humble scale. Uh, uh, Jones's team of six missionaries worked out of a small cottage estate, which they rented as a studio, and initially housed the station's jerry-built transmitter in the estate's sheep shed. This was the initial transmitter site. The world's first Protestant missionary broadcast took place on Christmas Day, 1931, and lasted a total of 30 minutes. The station's 250-watt signal, little stronger than a pair of light bulbs, was transmitted across a wire antenna strung up between two makeshift telephone poles and barely reached across the capital city, Quito. American uh, missionary radio did not expand significantly until uh, after World War II, and it did so then for a variety of reasons, which I won't go into uh, in the interest of time, but this is a, a wonderful little map that I found uh, in a Christian magazine that was published in 1951 or 52. Uh, as you can see, broadcasters meet the global challenge, and it, it pinpoints the various stations that emerged, even by 1950, around the world. Between 1945 and 1960, the number of American Protestant stations uh, increased tenfold from two to 20. And I want to point out to you one station in particular. There, this is uh, HCJB, is right here. Station Elwa, uh, which was started in 1954 in West Africa by a group of young graduates from Wheaton College, which is the alma mater of Billy Graham. I'll talk a lot about Elwa today. And then here in the Philippines, 
that is FEBC, Far East Broadcasting. Up here, slightly after this, uh, this uh, magazine was printed, Transworld, actually, no, excuse me, Transworld Radio is right there. It started in North Africa originally. The other thing, in addition to, to actually setting up stations, evangelicals also bought up airtime on commercial stations around the world. It's very important because there were many markets they couldn't get into, particularly in Europe. And these combined outlets between stations and transmitter time uh, provided an outlet for uh, popular radio preachers like uh, Charles E. Fuller, if you're familiar with his name, the Old Fashioned Revival Hour. His programs are now, by the way, he was very popular back in the 30s during the Great Depression. He is so popular that his programs are actually being rebroadcast now uh, today uh, on the air. Uh, Walter Mayer, uh, the Lutheran radio personality, and, and of course Billy Graham. By the late 1950s, uh, the popular conservative program, the Lutheran Hour, which was uh, organized by Walter Mayer, could be heard on over 1,200 stations around the world uh, in 60 different languages in 70 different countries. So as early as the 1950s, this pattern of the globalization of American evangelicalism was well underway. This is my point. Now let me turn to a more direct treatment of my own research project uh, including its specific focus and methodology. And I, I, I summarize what I do in one sentence, which is good. You need to be able to give a 10-second summary of your work, right? What I do is I do a history of radio reception or missionary radio reception as a material process. And I, I'd like to unpack that a little bit because it's a very dense statement. First of all, I want to mention that my work is historical. That is to say, I, I, I look at the history of missionary radio from its inception in 1931 up until 1970, the advent of the transistor era. And I think this is an important period that has been, I would say, completely overlooked by scholars. It forms an important prehistory, if you will, both for the spread of global Christianity as well as the rise of global Christian media. Uh, because my work is historical, I do rely on archival sources uh, for, all my, for all my evidence, if you will. All my documents come from archives. These archives are located at the headquarters of these missionary stations here in the U.S. So I have not done any field work. I have not left the country uh, yet to, 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 to conduct research. Uh, and that's something that, I, that you know, poses advantages as well as drawbacks. So my work is historical. Secondly, I look at missionary radio. And I, I mention that because it's important to realize that prior to 1970, you know, we're, we're so besieged by the current moment and the technology of the moment, the Internet, that we forget how important radio has been in, in the developing world, and, and still is today. But prior to 1970, radio was the dominant means, not only of electronic communication, but in many parts of the world, the dominant means of communication, period. Um, and it, it, in part, it has to do with the low cost of broadcasting and receiving uh, on shortwave. But because of this, radio became the first electronic media to become transnational in scope, and to globally diffuse in use and ownership. It's a very important technology to focus on if you're interested in transnational media flows. Thirdly, I focus on the question not only of radio, but of radio reception. There are three basic components to missionary broadcasting as to any radio broadcasting. One involves uh, the question of transmission, which I've sort of hinted at already. The other is the question of program production, the creation of, uh, of program materials. And the third is the issue of reception. The question that interests me the most is not necessarily how programs uh, get created and produced, which is a very important one. We were talking about that the other day. 
uh, or how they get transmitted, but how they are received on the ground at the local level. And I ask this question uh, partly because I think it's more interesting, but also because in the mission field, the point of reception is a critical link in the communication process uh, that is often overlooked uh, by scholars. Fourthly, and finally, as an historian of technology, and I'm not a cultural historian per se, I don't come out of a cultural studies background, I treat reception not as a, as a cultural issue, but as a material or a technological one. Of course, you can't completely divorce those. It's a matter of emphasis. Uh, but to put it in sort of media studies terms, I focus on, on the material, materiality of the apparatus itself. And I, and I do this uh, in, in large part for a very simple reason, and that is that we have generally assumed, I think, that listeners in the developing world in the 1950s had ready access to broadcast media. And we've sort of extrapolated from our own experience in the industrial West and from what was going on in places like the United States and projected it unreflectively onto the rest of the world. But just as the digital divide is a major issue today with the Internet, <laughs> the, the electronic divide, whatever term you want to use, was a huge issue back in the 1950s. People simply uh, did not have access to radio on a widespread basis in many parts of the world. And so this posed a tremendous obstacle to both religious communication as well as political communication. I mean, governments have faced similar obstacles in, in post-independence in, in places like Africa. So how missionary broadcasters responded to the acute shortage of reception devices or radios uh, demonstrated both the entrepreneurial character of missionaries, which I'll come back to later, as well as their missionary purpose. In other words, how they went about tackling that problem is very symptomatic, I, I believe. And it also shows how, how missionary radio programs emerged as a, a heavily localized rather than purely global phenomenon. So just to summarize, uh, what I'm engaged in is the historical study of missionary radio reception. And I, I believe by doing this, looking at as a, as a material process, in other words, examining what it entailed and how it was constructed as a field of activity, provides us with a critical lens through which to examine both the relationship between missionary producers and audiences and to analyze specifically how broadcast media shaped the emergence of an indigenous church in the non-Western world prior to 1970. Let me now turn more specifically to this question of radio reception, which missionary broadcasters faced. When American evangelical missionary broadcasters arrived overseas, they found uh, an amazing scarcity of, of radios. For example, when Clarence Jones arrived in Ecuador, there were just six radios in the capital of Quito and 150 in the entire country. When these evangelical students from Wheaton College arrived in Liberia in 1954, they found that less than 1% of the population owned radios. And, of course, those radios were concentrated in, in the urban areas, in cities like Monrovia, and among their middle and upper classes. So just to understand why this, why this is, I, I think it's useful to step back, if you will, and look at, a, at, a, at the bigger picture here. And this is uh, data provided by UNESCO and World, you know, World Ownership of Radios in 1950. And you can see the, the, the key, the key um, criteria here, the uh, key measure, is the number of so the set penetration is the number of receivers per 1,000 people. And you can see that it was in the United States, almost 50%. Uh, if you drop down to, to Latin America, 62 sets per 1,000 people. 
Africa 7.7 sets per 1,000 people. That's phenomenal scarcity of radios. And if you're a missionary interested in con communicating via broadcasting with, with audiences, that poses a tremendous obstacle. And in, we can say in a nutshell that, that the target audience of missionary broadcasters, the rural poor, simply did not have radios prior to 1960. And this is what uh, missionaries identified as, in their terms, what they called the receiver problem. And there's a very uh, useful uh, citation from a, a pair of, of evangelical engineers who were writing to each other in 1953, uh, one named Henry Hungerpiller, the other Hank Voss. Hank Voss was very involved in a project to develop a missionary transistor radio to solve this problem. But he said, the problem of transmitting signals to the uttermost parts of the world is about solved or can be solved readily. In other words, transmission isn't the problem. Right? It isn't a, you know, we've got shortwave transmitters. That, you know, that, that problem has been, built, has been resolved largely. The big problem is receiving sets, especially for the rural districts. So what did missionary broadcasters do to try and address this problem, this acute shortage of radios. Well, what's so striking initially about these evangelical missionaries is that they didn't give up. They didn't sit on their heels and wait for a commercial market to develop, which would take a good two decades. Rather, they undertook active efforts to initially to import and later to actually manufacture radios and to distribute them through the countryside. During the post-war period, missionary uh, stations around the world organized their own uh, receiver initiatives, which they called Portable Missionary Receiver Departments, or PMR departments. Uh, an important Liberian Christian leader named Augustus Marway considered these radios, these PMRs, Portable Missionary Radios, quote, one of the most potent instruments of evangelism and church development in the history of Christian missions, end quote. Uh, the, it, the names of some of these programs, uh, the HCJB organized a department called the Radio Circle, which by 1968 had manufactured and distributed some 20,000 radios. Uh, Far East Broadcasting organized a series of, of clubs, portable missionary listening clubs using these radios located in the barrios or villages throughout the Philippines and other countries in Southeast Asia. Between 1954 and 1970, Elwa workers in Liberia placed nearly 2,400 radios with indigenous Christians and church workers, mostly in rural areas of Liberia, forming hundreds of small radio communities at the village level. And what is, I think, so striking uh, about these receiver departments is not only that they demonstrate, as I said, this entrepreneurial spirit, but they show how missionary broadcasters indigenized their operations, that is, translated them into local idioms. They made uh, heavy use of, of local materials to build these radios, local personnel to distribute the radios and use them in local church services. And in the process, they deeply embedded their efforts within existing social uh, networks and cultural practices. And here, just for purposes of illustration, uh, I, I could go on at great length, but I want to just focus on one key characteristic of these receiver departments, and that is how they made use of communal, community listening or communal use of radios. So what I'm going to do now is sort of shift gears a little bit and show you a series of slides, uh, just images. I'm not going to offer a lot of comment because I think they speak for themselves. But they'll give you a good, if you will, global view of how these radios were used very, very effectively. 
the idea of using radios in a communal setting initiated uh, was initiated by Clarence Jones in Ecuador. And this initial picture is from the early 30s. Uh, began with, he began using radios in families and family settings to make up for the fact that uh, the radios were so scarce. And these other two pictures are similarly of families in Ecuador. And you can see how they're organized, they're, the families are gathered around these radios. And I have a picture of one of these sets that I actually took at, at the station's headquarters in Colorado, which I'll show you in a moment. Here's another photograph, this one from, from, the British, uh, from Jamaica, again showing a village uh, that's organized around a single radio. In the Philippines, um, you can read the text down here. You can see this, this is a barrio or a, a village community that's gathered. You can't see the radio because it's, it's in the middle here. But the text below here says, reads, a PM in operation under a mango tree in one of the barrios of Luzon. This is only one of several hundred similar scenes throughout the Philippines and other parts of Asia. Uh, the FEBC reported that they had, in some cases, as many as 2,000 people listening to these radios on, on, on occasion. What would be the date of this? That's 1952. Yeah, it's, it's, it's early. Uh, this next picture is, uh, is taken in Siam. Uh, and here actually is a missionary that is bringing, as the description indicates, bringing non-Christians. Says only two of the listeners are actually Christians. So this is a, a clearly an evangelistic device being used here. Uh, and I'll also note that it's actually a commercial set. This is not a, a radio that was manufactured by the station. But it just indicates that there was a wide range of practices in which missionaries engaged. It takes a while. Here we go. Uh, the next two slides are, are a fascinating picture. This set, I'll, I'll show you a picture of again later. You can't read the writing, but it's, it's called The Villager. It was a set which is actually designed and produced by the uh, Evangelical Missionary Project organized by Hank Voss that I mentioned to you earlier. It was a transistor radio custom made for the mission field. About 2,000 of them were made. But this is in a, this is in a Liberian village, and you can see... Uh, the, the community gathered around to listen to the radio set. But what's fascinating about this picture is that I also have a reverse image uh, taken from behind the radio, which shows you what people are actually doing while they're listening. Usually the focus is on the radio. But here you can see, uh, you can see people are engaged in praying or of some kind of spiritual activity, uh, heads bowed, uh, eyes closed, although not all eyes are closed here. Uh, and this cord, by the way, here, th- there was no electricity uh, in these locations. This actually connected to a megaphone so that the radio could actually be used as a two-way speaking, as a two-way communication device. Here I've, I've just assembled sort of a collage of several images. This again is the same radio I showed before, the villager in a community here. These two sets are commercial radios produced by Philips and then uh, this is a, a, a Japanese transistor radio. This is in the early 70s, I believe. But what's interesting here is, if you can read this caption, this is taken from a missionary book, desk, uh, a coffee book, table book. Um, but it says, oftentimes in the village, a single radio can draw a group of listeners. So what I'm getting at here is that prior to the, to the widespread diffusion and I should mention, by the way, that, that, that just a, as a point of detail, that a Voice of America survey that was taken in the early 60s 
uh, said that, that as many as nine people on average listen to radios in the, in the capital city of Monrovia and that figures are much higher in the outlying rural areas. So this is a typical pattern that was widespread. But the, the general point that I'm trying to make here is that before the widespread diffusion of transistor radios after 1970, radio listening in Africa and Asia and Latin America was an intensely social preoccupation. We've lost sight of that uh, in, you know, in, in the industrial West. The missionary broadcasters deliberately took advantage of community listening to considerably expand their outreach and uh, their audiences and the reach of their programs. And I should just mention before I move on here that community listening is, was not just about uh, greater numbers, you know, which of course was a major point, but it also created a certain, a certain social logic which worked in missionaries' favor. You can imagine, as it said, you know, a, a, a radio can draw a, a crowd. And an, an entire village listening to a single set, often the only one in the area, would be difficult for an individual to resist. Now, the other thing I want to mention um, about the, the missionary receiver programs that's important, uh, its distinctive characteristic, if you will, was its narrow range of use, what I call here dedicated usage. Missionaries were very intent on controlling how their radio sets were utilized. And control was, uh, was predicated or derived from both a set of technical and cultural concerns. On the technical level, before the, the appearance of the development of transistor radios, missionaries were very, very concerned about, about battery usage. Tube radios drained batteries very quickly. And batteries were very, very difficult to replace in the bush. So missionaries were very interested in regulating how, exactly how much, their audiences listened to their radios in order to ensure that they didn't waste their batteries. So that's sort of a technical or material concern. The other is a purely cultural one, which perhaps is more predictable. Missionaries wanted to limit the kinds of programs that audiences could hear. They wanted to limit them to strictly religious programs. They didn't want them tuning in to the BBC or the VOA or other types of cultural or news or entertainment. And so they were interested in using radios as, if you will, dedicated devices for strictly religious communication. And in this sense, they departed, if you will, from the model of mass communication. A radio is a mass communication device in the West and used radio as a very specific tool to reach and target targeted niche audiences. So how did they do this? How did they circumscribe the behavior of listeners and limit what they could listen to? Well, they adapted a variety of techniques of social, legal, and technical mechanisms to ensure that listeners tuned in only to the missionary station. But the dominant practice was the use of pre-tuning. That is, radios with fixed circuits that could only pick up a single station, namely the missionary station. And I've, I've got a, a, examples here of some of these sets that I showed you earlier in those slides. This is an 8CJB pre-tuned set of which thousands were made. Uh, there's the other set that I mentioned to you, the Villager. Here's a picture of one, again, in an archive. So these models were made on a proprietary basis by missionary stations themselves. They were also produced and purchased commercially. Philips NV of Holland uh, produced pre-tuned radios for rural radio school networks. And what's important to bear in mind here is that it's, it was a widespread, almost a universal practice around the world. Almost every single station that I've come across prior to 1970 was employing these kinds of radios. 
These were the kinds of radios they were manufacturing. These are the kinds of radios they were distributing. And it lasted up until 1970 because at that point, transistor radios became widely available, uh, mostly being produced out of Japan, but knockoff brands as well in other parts of the world. And so when, when transistor radios became widely available, it was no longer commercially feasible to run these kinds of programs. So they ended in 1970. And I should mention just parenthetically that, that it is the, the advent of transistor radios in, beginning in 1960, but really taking off in the 1970s, that spells the end of the receiver problem in the mission field. By the turn of the 21st century, set penetration level in Africa reaches up to almost 50%. So it, the problem of access, at least to radio, uh, is largely disappears by the end of the century, thanks to transistor technology. What's interesting is that the use of pre-tuned radios <laughs> doesn't disappear. It, re- it, re- it re-emerges in the late 1980s and 1990s. In the 1990s, uh, stations like TWR, I mentioned in Far East Broadcasting, promoted radio Bibles to American sponsors. Uh, these Bibles they distributed to local churches in closed countries like China and North Korea, and Vietnam and Cambodia, uh, as well as Mozambique and among the gypsies of Central Eastern Europe. Since 1989, a Canadian company named Galcom International has distributed uh, nearly half a million solar-powered, fixed-tuned pocket missionaries, they call them, uh, targeting, quote, people who cannot afford a radio in places where there is no electricity or battery power, places like refugee camps, cities, prisons, institutions, and isolated language groups including regions like Siberia. So you can see, I don't know if you can make it out here, but this is the radio right here. It's a solar-powered pre-tuned radio. And you can't read the logo, but it says GoYi. This is produced by an Israeli company and distributed by a Canadian firm named Galcom. And GoYi is taken from Matthew 28, which is the Great Commission, GoYi into all the world and preach the good news. So this is the solar panel. This is a pre-tuned radio that only pick up, you know, one is a low-power Station presumably in the in the vicinity. Do they have a that one has a solar powered panel, but so you have to be out in the sun with it, or you don't hear anything. Well, I presume I, I don't I don't know specifically how long it can hold a charge for, but the issue of the issue of, of power is still uh, still I mean is still an issue because you know recently there's been this initiative to, of uh, producing hand cranked radios, yes. um, which has been very successful in the developing world. So this is an ongoing issue. Uh, hasn't disappeared, but this particular model used uh, solar energy. Just so before I move on here, I just want to, you know, why is this so important? Why, why are pre-tuned radios um, significant? And I think the reason I dwell on it is because they, they, if you will, not only symbolize but operationalize an important face of missionary radio, and that is the, the, the issue of control. Uh, that radio uh, was a contested material site of audience control, that the missionaries were interested in, in determining, if you will, what their audiences did. And we can't lose sight of that in trying to understand the dynamic uh, uh, of what was going on on the ground. Not only were they entrepreneurial and, and very adept at localizing their practices, but they had an underlying motive, right? They were interested in, in missionary evangelism, media evangelism, conversion. Okay. Move on to assessing missionary radio, and then I want to talk about some of the themes in media studies that I think might be of interest to you and certainly are to me. 
The first, uh, I want to uh, uh, sort of assess two things. The first is I want to talk briefly about American evangelical innovation, and then I want to move on to talk about the question of the impact of, of missionary radio. The first thing that I want to say is that the study of missionary radio reception demonstrates the creative innovation of evangelical missionaries. And by the way, this picture is of the, the group of engineers and missionary broadcasters. This was taken in 1954 in Chicago, who assembled to custom design a transistor radio for the mission field. This project lasted for four years. And what this project, along with the, the whole missionary radio endeavor as a whole, demonstrates is that evangelical missionaries were entrepreneurial, they were innovative, they were creative, particularly in their use of, their sophisticated use of media. Evangelical missionaries creatively adapted radio from the industrial West as a mass media technique to vastly different tropical environments where they used it as a specialized communication tool to reach niche audiences. A very, very different use in a very different environment. Now, to those who study uh, evangelical media, you know, this innovation comes as no surprise, but I think it bears pointing out nonetheless because it's not a widely shared view either in the academy or among the general public. The far more common view of evangelicals is that they are a, you know, theologically, politically, and culturally backward, that they're somehow irretrievably opposed to a dead set against modernity and the world that we live in. And I think that if, if we're to truly understand media evangelism and its global implications today, um, if we really see it for what it truly is, we need to get beyond these kinds of simplistic stereotypes, which I would argue are basically, uh, are often, if not always, uh, based in fear. Evangelicals did not reject modernity outright. Uh, they selectively appropriated those elements, particularly communication forms and practices that suited their religious purposes. And they tied these appropriations to a conservative, religious, even fundamentalist worldview. So I think it's important to, to, to really appreciate who evangelicals are. We have to understand that they're innovative, and that's fundamental to, to, to their identity, and that that innovation in, inherently involves the use of media. I, I, I mention this because I'm also um, trying to organize or help organize a communication forum in the spring on this very subject, looking at contemporary practices of evangelicals in the media. Because I think this is something, it's a, it's a significant phenomenon that, that we do well to, to pay close attention to. All right, let me move on now to the question of impacts. Uh, the second area uh, in which I want to assess missionary radio is, is much trickier methodologically. It has to do with the question of impact. And that is to say, how do we measure or assess the influence of media evangelism or missionary radio in this case? Can we believe the claims of practitioners like Pat Robertson that I quoted at the beginning, you know, to millions of millions of, of converts? Uh, it's, you know, you, you come across those claims all the time. You know, what do we do with that? <laughs> and it's a very, very difficult uh, methodological area, and I'm not going to go into it in great detail here, uh, but I will just simply summarize uh, the, what Quentin Schultz, who is a, a leading scholar in this area, has said, and it's very pithily. <laughs> he said, I, you know, I do not believe that the most important effects of the electronic church are empirically verifiable. In other words, that we can't pinpoint one for one and say, you know, that, that evangelical radio or television has, you know, has produced X number of conversions. It just doesn't work that way, you know, from, from a, simply from a, from a scholarly standpoint. 
What scholars like, like Quentin Schultz and Stuart Hoover and Jeffrey Haddon, who study religious audiences in the United States, tell us is that media is especially good at reinforcing community identity, all right? Uh, but that it is not nearly as good at recruiting new members. In other words, televangelism broadly defined is basically preaching to the choir. It's basically reaching the people that have already been converted rather than the unevangelized. To use uh, James Carey's frame, frame of analysis, which some of you are familiar with, religious broadcasting functions more effectively as a ritual form of communication than as an informational one. Well, that's based on research in the United States. What about the mission field? Does the same logic or dynamic hold here? Well, it's clear from researchers, scholars, as well as from anecdotal accounts, including those of broadcasters themselves, that radio has played an important role in the global expansion of Christianity. It's undeniable. The question is exactly what kind of role and whether we can measure that role using the tools of the social sciences. Um, you know, the, the challenge is, is to reconcile these two, the difficulty of, of using analytical tools, hard tools, if you will, to get hard data um, with the, the, the apparent role that media evangelism has played. And I'd, I'd like to suggest that the answer to reconciling this, this apparent um, conundrum lies in shifting our frame of analysis, that I think we're asking the wrong question, if you will. Uh, shifting our frame of analysis from, so I've been talking about how we measure cultural impact, from conversion to legitimization. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, in the global south, uh, a different cultural dynamic existed during the post-war period than in the United States. In the United States, evangelical Christianity enjoyed an established tradition and widespread uh, recognition, as it had in the Anglo-American world for you know, almost two, two, two centuries. In the post-war period in the global south, however, popular attitudes ranged widely from simple ignorance of evangelical claims as in Africa to open hostility to evangelical claims uh, as in uh, much of Latin America. In other words, if you were an evangelical missionary in the 1950s in places like Ecuador, you were much more likely to be stoned right, or run out of town than you would have been to be welcomed into someone's home. So it's a very, very different cultural environment. And I think this is where media and radio in particular have played a critical role. By introducing religion into the domestic security of the home or the village on a regular basis, radio helped to familiarize audiences over time with a religion that they once perceived as unfamiliar foreign, or even worse, hostile. In so doing, radio normalized or legitimized evangelical discourse. What had once seemed strange gradually began to appear more normal by simple inclusion in everyday life. This insertion into everyday life is a function that media, and perhaps only media, can fulfill. And it is this, I would argue, that, uh, which is media's fundamental role in the process of cross-cultural evangelization. So, contrary to what you might expect, the important role of media in evangelism, I argue, is not in conversion per se, although that certainly occurs. I'm not saying that, it doesn't, that, that media don't result in produce, produce converts. What I'm saying 
is its more important cultural role is in a process of pre-evangelism, if you will, is in preparing people uh, uh, through a, a lengthy cultural interaction for a conversion decision. Let me quote, uh, if I may, Quentin Schultz once again. The impact of the electronic church is not fundamentally financial or numerical. The most important effect of these broadcasts is on the public conception of religious faith. Generally, and the Christian faith specifically, these broadcasts are, quote, transforming public conceptions of religious practice and belief. And that's where I think we need to look to the true uh, impact of media. So now that I've, I've discussed my basic project, let me move in the time that I've got left to, to think about how media studies specifically can, can enhance our understanding of media evangelism. Um, in the interest of time, I'm just going to focus on one area, and I'll, I'll suggest several others uh, in closing that I might look into further. But I'm interested quite specifically in the question of orality because I, look at, you know, I work on radio, and this is obviously a key key uh, attribute of radio. And the question here, it seems to me, is how do we account for the success of radio as a means of media evangelism in traditional or pre-modern societies where it seems to work best? Uh, In the same way, for example, that we might have to explain the popularity of visual technologies like television or the Internet among Pentecostal charismatic churches in the global south today. Indeed, this is something that scholars are paying more and more attention to. Evangelical missions uh, were, excuse me, well-suited to radio for two reasons, stemming from two basic factors. The first has to do with the nature of evangelical religion itself, and I'll talk about that first. And the second has to do with the nature of radio as an oral media. So first, let me talk about uh, evangelical religion briefly. Some of you may know this already. For evangelicals, salvation uh, requires a simple faith in the gospel rather than membership in a church or participation in the sacraments. Uh, As an individual experience, conversion can and does occur in a wide range of locales, at home, at work, on the road, by your radio, uh, and it doesn't require the specific intervention of a pastor or priest. By contrast, conversion from mainline Protestant denominations, as well as the Catholic Church, involves participation in church life and the wholesale adoption of Western culture. Now let me give you just one uh, such account of an evangelical conversion which took place in the mission field, literally by a radio. And I think you'll see my point here. It's from uh, Emmanuel Ephraim, who was a, a clerk who worked in Kumasi, Ghana, and who was converted by listening to the preaching of Howard Jones, who was the radio pastor of Station Elwa. Jones was a a pastor from Cleveland, Ohio, who had worked closely with Billy Graham. And I've I've just written down the the testimony here for us to read together. But it did not take me one sermon to teach the truth of God. I thank God he was very patient with me. And as I sat through all English, English broadcasts by evangelist Howard Jones, he slowly opened my understanding to his vital truth. One day I got so burned that I decided to do something about my state. After a sermon over the air, it was heard on the radio, as the invitation was offered, I bowed my head and asked the Lord to take over my life again. I shut off the set, went into my room and knelt down and prayed again. Thus, 
as I went over to the Lord's side. Since then I have had many sorrows, but the power of the new birth has kept me trusting still. I know I am saved, and nothing can shake this assurance out of my soul. Thank God for it. And I love this last line, and it was all by radio. So, you know, this, this, this individual literally had his conversion by his radio set. One thing I want you to note here, and I'll come back to this later on, is the importance of the repetition which radio provides. He, he mentions this in the beginning. Uh, he was very patient with me as I sat through all English broadcasts. This didn't happen overnight. This didn't happen after listening to one, one single program. He was listening to the radio on a regular basis. Also, I want you to notice how, how Ephraim linked the meaning of his radio directly with a deep evangelical strain of religious experience involving a sense of personal sinfulness, a need for individual salvation, and a conversion through faith in Jesus' Christ's shed blood on the cross. So let me move on now to the second point, uh, which I wanted to make about the orality of radio as a medium, and then I'll try and tie these together. Missionary broadcasters, perhaps understandably, linked the effectiveness of their work directly to the power of Scripture as an oral tradition, citing the Apostle Paul in the Epistle to Romans, chapter 10, verse 17. Some of you may know this. Paul stated famously that, quote, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Clarence Jones made this connection explicit, directly tying the power of radio as an oral medium to the spoken tradition of the Bible. And I quote, There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that a man must see the person whose voice he hears. Faith in Christ can still come to a heart where the word is preached, though it comes through a microphone hundreds of miles away. In other words, you can get saved simply by hearing the word, right? You don't have to see it. You don't have to see the priest or the pastor. All you have to do is hear it. And you wouldn't hear anybody else but an evangelical, I mean, or someone in the evangelical tradition saying that. You wouldn't hear a Lutheran saying that much less a Catholic. So Jones and others not only tied radio, uh, tied, well, tied their work into the inherent power unleashed by electromagnetic communication, but they legitimized their own usage of the new broadcasting media for evangelism in this way. So we see here, and this goes all the way back to the beginning of radio's history in the United States as a religious medium, that religious broadcasters deliberately capitalized on the... the uh, the powers of radio as an oral medium. Now, how does this play into the mission field? Well, the oral qualities of evangelical radio, which I've just outlined, tied it both backwards to the Christian tradition and also lent it salience among traditional oral societies in the non-Western world. Uh, Marshall McLuhan uh, characterized radio as a tribal medium uh, that possessed, in, in Walter Ong's words, a type of secondary orality. Uh, not primary orality, but a, a secondary one. These phenomenological qualities uh, of radio resonated with oral cultures in places like, uh, like West Africa. And what's important to me as a, as a religious historian is that Ang also links secondary orality with, with sacrality, that is, with the creation of a sense of the sacred. Writers like Patty Scannell, the broadcast historian in radio, television, and modern life, and Michel de Certeau have argued in a similar way that mass broadcasting media, partly through their 24-hour formats and repetition of programming, create a totalizing universe and representation of reality which can facilitate 
religious belief. Missionaries placed great emphasis on the value of repetition provided by radio, as I just recounted in this testimony. Uh, they believed that repetition provided, uh, excuse me, that uh, repetition helped to legitimize uh, evangelical faith and eventually led to conversion. Again, let me quote Clarence Jones, writing in 1945, Often, only as the old, old story is repeated many times, line upon line and precept upon precept, does the individual or group begin to understand the truth with a capital T and the light of the Lord enter in. Radio allows the missionary to project the many attractive programs he has to offer leading up to the message of salvation time and time again under unusually favorable listening conditions. The drop of water falling on hardest stone can finally crack it by virtue of of repetition. Uh, The testimony of a radio convert named Peter Danu, uh, which was recounted by an Elwa language broadcaster, bore out the importance of repetition by radio uh, in the process of conversion. Quote, and this is, a, this is the news testimony, it's very short. Sometimes uh, one missionary come to our town to preach, but he only scratched the ground. He didn't cut the trees down. It makes one year now since one lady in our town got a radio. She called all the crew people to hear this man, Bessman, who was the, the language broadcaster, preach God's word. I went to hear this word every day, and soon time I was saved. So again, it wasn't hearing at one time, hearing a, a preaching service when the missionary came on that one basis, one-time basis, but it was by hearing radio uh, on a repeated basis that led to Danu's conversion. Thus, missionary broadcasters prized those qualities of radio which built on uh, and distinguished it from earlier media, particularly printed and oral media, and by this, I mean radio's oral properties as well as its repeatability. Now, of course, radio possessed other uh, valuable properties in the mission field that I'm skipping over, uh, namely its ability as a spoken medium to overcome barriers of illiteracy, its ability to create a sense of personal intimacy with listeners, which printed media didn't have, its close association with the ether and the unseen world, which was very powerful in animistic societies. All of these properties contributed significantly to radio's success as a platform for media evangelism in the global south prior to 1970. Now, before closing and uh, opening it up for your questions, let me just suggest some other areas for future study. The first is comparative media analysis. Missionaries and conservative evangelicals, of course, used multiple media uh, media platforms in the mission field, including uh, personal contact, print literature, and electronic media. In fact, one could argue for the existence of a sort of a missionary sensorium, if you will. And so it's, it, would be, it is interesting to, to wonder, you know, to interrogate these use of, of various media platforms and to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that travels across missionary platforms or religious platforms? Is it, a, is it a narrative? Is it a transmedia narrative that carries over from print to radio to television to church services? Is it a discourse? Is it some form of spiritual experientialism? So in that sense, we can talk about how media uh, share certain common, religious use of media share certain common properties. Conversely, we could also talk about how uh, re- different media frame uh, 
discourse, evangelical discourse, and experience differently. So there we might contrast the use of radio and the use of television. Um, it, this leads to a consideration of, of moments of, of media transition, because I think, as, as uh, William uh, often points out, you know, it's especially, uh, William Eurekio, it's especially useful to understand differences in media platforms, in this case, missionary media platforms, at moments of change. And in the history of missionary communication, at least in the 20th century, there, were two, there have been two such mo- major moments of change. The first was in the post-World War II period, which forms the focus of my own work, and that is the shift from, from personal and print media to mass communication, uh, namely, in particular, radio broadcasting. So the question here might be, how did earlier traditional missionary methods of communication change or accommodate uh, electronic media like radio? The second media transition is the one that we're experiencing right now in, in, in the developing world. That is the shift from, and, and in the United States as well, the shift from radio to television is the dominant medium of choice. And here we might ask, you know, how has television changed Protestant religious experience in places like Africa uh, and Latin America? Uh, thirdly, uh, we can look at the question of mediation. Now here I'm thinking specifically of how electronic media perform specifically spiritual functions. That is, how do they mediate between the natural and the supernatural worlds? And that's a fascinating question. There's a long history uh, of interaction going all the way back to the telegraph. And then uh, lastly, and perhaps most importantly, is the question of audiences. And here uh, there are two sort of uh, components. One is a methodological one and the other is an ideological one. On a methodological level, you know, the, the question arises, you know, how, do you, how do you construct the experience of historical audiences, right? How do you construct the experience of audiences in the 1950s in rural Liberia that are largely illiterates, that left no written records behind? Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a, an undertaking fraught with difficulties and dangers, uh, so far, as I indicated at the beginning of my talk, I've relied on, on written sources found in broadcaster archives in the United States. But I understand that this introduces an admitted bias into my work. I see things very much through a particular lens. And people that didn't write letters to the station have no voice, for example. I am hoping to do field work in the next couple of years to begin undertaking an audience ethnography, an ethnography of, of religious radio audiences in Africa and Latin America, particularly in Liberia and Ecuador. And I have reason for hope I've, I've, uh, that this will be a successful endeavor. I've talked to people at conferences that recently um, who are scholars from West Africa who actually uh, recounted to me that they grew up listening to the station, that it was uh, the most important religious station in, in, the, in the region. So that's on a methodological level. I think that I need to ex, you know, expand or my toolkit, if you will. Uh, as an historian, that's troubling <laughs> and difficult to do. But otherwise, you kind of come up against a real wall. And I'd be happy to talk about this some more if, 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 uh, if audience members have suggestions about how to do this. The second dimension in talking about audiences is an ideological one. And I think that I need to pay closer attention to the question of power and, and ideology. Uh, specifically, you know, thinking about how power was distributed to missionaries and their national partners uh, in both the colonial and post-colonial contexts. What sort of co-opting with government authorities made missionary radio possible? 
Uh, to what extent did missionary radio represent a sign of power to listeners, uh, either the power of technology itself or the power of the West or the power of the central government? And what role might this have played in its appeal to listeners, especially in rural areas? At its most basic level, I guess, the, the question I find myself asking is, you know, is religion at heart a, a form of ideological domination? You know, or false consciousness, some might argue, or hegemony? Or is it a legitimate source of identity and meaning? These are questions that I have to wrestle with. So in summary, uh, what I've tried to do is to outline for you the rise of, of, of a global Christianity that's centered in the South, the Southern Hemisphere, and tried to, to point out the influence that, or the, the important role that Christian media, global Christian media, has played in that development. And then I've tried to s- s- summarize my own work on the history of missionary radio reception. Uh, in conclusion, let me make one closing comment uh, or reflection, and that is try to address in, in, in one last time this question about the role of media evangelism in uh, global Christianity. I, I, I come back to uh, James Carey's twofold conception of communication that I mentioned earlier. Media did play an important informational function in communicating or propagating the, the evangelical faith. And, of course, it did bring in new converts. I, I don't want to dismiss that. But I think, as I've suggested, that media played a far more important symbolic or ritual function within evangelical religious communities. Media has, I believe, more to do with self-perception and self-identification than with propagation. It is about defining the boundaries of religious community, about shaping, as Quentin Schultz said, the public conception of religion, namely what counts as religion. And, of course, these boundaries shift with changes in the media landscape. Uh, and these changes in the media landscape, as the, the sort that we're experiencing or witnessing right now in, in the global south, allow for different types of mediated religious experience. So on that note, I will um, end, having gone on for a little bit longer than I'd hoped. You've been a very patient audience. And I will turn it back over to Henry or the moderator, whoever that is. Questions. Since I have the mic, I'll ask the first question. So, um, I, I may have missed this, so I apologize for being late. I was in, in another class, but um, the, the the spread of this was rooted in U.S.-based organizations, and then disseminated around. And I'm I'm wondering um, how much of the um, of the original sort of message or, or goal is is changed when it goes into a new environment, and how is that? How is that dealt with, and then how does that impact your work in trying to gauge what that impact is? Do you mean the, the basic, met, the, the, the sort of basic religious content? Uh, yeah. The religious content. Yeah. I mean, or, or does it, if if it does at all? I guess yeah. the message. How does the message translate in the message? <laughs> right. No, that's it's it's a it's a big question. I as I as I hinted, well, as I stated in my talk. Um, you know the the focus of my work isn't on isn't on the cultural side, in the sense that I don't engage in uh, program analysis of that kind. 
But having said that, I think it's an important sort of uh, bigger picture question. And I think, I think it's two things are going on. One, that the, the evangelical message is being translated into local practices and idioms. And so in that sense, it is being uh, vernacularized, if you will. Um, in the West African context, it becomes the, the station Elwa is very, very good, very effective at translating the, the, the Bible um, over the air into you know, 40 or 50 different local languages. And what's so striking is that what listeners say about the station when they hear it, what the, the first thing they point out is not only that they could hear a distant voice coming from Monrovia, but that they heard the gospel, the Bible, in their own language. So there's something about their own self-identification, their own identity, and it's very much tied into language. And so it's, it does form a sort of a type of validation. So that's, that's happening on the one hand. Um, and what, on the other hand, uh, you know, there, is, there is an attempt, of course, um, at, control, at controlling that process if you will, from the top down. And it's, it's a complicated dynamic. Um, I, I think there are, I think it's, imp- it's, it's uh, important to balance the sort of the globalizing influences, in other words, the, the influences coming from the American side that are trying to control uh, the program content and, and the cultural influence and the ways in which those are appropriated at the local level. Um, and it's a complicated dynamic, so I think I'll... I don't want to take on too long, but it's a good question. So my question concerns the comparative media side of it. Um, And uh, first of all, I'm wondering if you're familiar with the One Laptop Per Child project, which originated in the Media Lab. and is. um, I'm wondering whether or not um, some of your uh, conclusions, some of your... uh, some of the wisdom you're deriving out of this study of um, uh, the spread of uh, evangelical radio can inform how we understand that project. Now, there are some key differences. (laughs) Very importantly, it's not uh, for explicitly religious purposes, although some might argue that there is some amount of ideology that is involved in the the mission behind the group. Obviously, it's not primarily an oral medium uh, in the same way that radio is. Um, and it also has, is not in the mass media uh, form. It's much more about sort of networked communication. Um, so I, I concede that it differs in several ways from this movement. That being said, there are some similarities. It has to do with distribution of new media technologies in developing nations um, may face some of the same sorts of issues. Are there any worthwhile parallels that you could draw between this um, development and this very new development around trying to get um, uh, these uh, information communication technologies in the hands of... Are you you talking about about the... Yeah, one laptop per child, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a... (laughs) That's a big question, uh, and I, I always hesitate to prognosticate because you know historians are are always reluctant to generalize, you know, from their own their own work because whenever you study history, conditions are always 
particular to, to, and unique. And so in that sense, it's difficult to, uh, to, to generalize and apply it to other settings. I guess I would, what strikes me just in listening to your question, there are, are, are two issues, one which uh, came up, David, a little earlier in, in your point about uh, these radios, uh, the solar-powered radio, yeah. and that is the, the key par- one of the key parameters in, in any rural setting in a developing context, country, is the question of power source. Uh, and I don't know uh, enough to know how they've tackled that issue, but that would be the... F- right. And that's the same with... There's a company in England, I can't remember the name of it, that, uh, an entrepreneur who created the first effective hand-cranked uh, radio. Um, some of you may know more about that. Um, so that, that's the first, uh, you know, tackling that issue is, is, is the first question. And if that's done effectively, that's, that will go a long way towards ensuring the, the viability of the project. The second I would, thing I would say is sort of tying into a comment I was making to you is, is to indigenize the operation as much as possible. That's what, that's what the evangelicals were so good at, is translating it into local practices, whatever that means, both in terms of distribution outlets and in terms of of how the technology is actually utilized on the ground. So there's, there, at some point there has to be sort of a handoff. Um, and it's a complicated one because all the, if you will, all the material resources and the, the brain power is, I presume it's here in the media lab in, in terms of developing the technology, right? Um, so that feedback loop may, 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 have, may be difficult to, to pull off. Um, but that's, I, if, I was, if I was to try and generalize, I think that's, those are the two areas that I would... Um, those are the two ingredients that I would point to as saying are critical for success. At least those are what the missionary broadcasters were very, very good at doing, and that's what I think helped them. I think you gave 1931 as a critical date for the start of it, and I found myself wondering why then, because from the start of broadcasting, you have church services going out on the air. KDKA had a church service, I think, in 1920. And some churches even owned stations. And uh, by the late 20s, you have the rise of Father Coughlin becomes very important. Is this date, 1930-31, is that attributable to one guy, as you suggested, or can it be seen in the context of the history of the previous decade? Is that clear? I mean, yeah, I think yeah. yeah. I mean, there was no. I mean, I emphasized the, uh, sort of the the great man theory of history yeah. for purposes of simplification, simply because that wasn't the focal point of my talk today. Yeah. But of course, there is a much larger context. Um, there always is whenever you whenever you present a you know a, a narrative of an individual like that. There's always a larger framework that they're operating within. Um, I mean, I think. On a, on a technical level, of course, it, you know, it was Marconi's experiments in the late 20s, you know, with, with the beam system that, that effectively led to, to affordable long-distance long broadcasting in the, in, by a shortwave. Yes. It wasn't until that technology was there that it was even conceivable to do this kind of a thing because, as I hinted, it started out as this local station with 250 watts, but Jones's conception, in fact, he originally labeled himself uh, you know the, the, Latin, the Latin America shortwave broadcast. Oh, that so, was a shortwave station. No, no, it wasn't originally. Oh, I mean, oh. he, had, he had envisioned it, but the reality, yes. when he got to Quito and started to get the thing going, he realized it was much more problematic. But within a couple of years, he was up on shortwave. Uh-huh. So that was his original vision, was to be in right. shortwave. The other thing, the other reason why I think it happened in 1931 is that it, it, and this is something that I develop elsewhere, but not here, 
is that missionary radio very much grew out of radio revivalism in the United States. I mean, it was an outgrowth, an expression of it. It's, it's, it's overflowing, if you will, onto foreign shores. So it's no coincidence that, that Jones was a protege of Paul Rader, who was a pioneer figure in, in radio, religious radio in the U.S. And, and Rader was the one who, in fact, was a role model, a mentor, and who pushed Jones to go into to the mission field as a, as a radio um, manager, station manager. Um, and and it, it isn't just a chronological coincidence because missionary radio from its origins relied very heavily on support from the U.S. In other words, churchgoers in the United States were sending contributions to the station to keep it on its feet. <clears throat> Mission societies in the United States, they weren't getting money. Over, who are they going to get money from overseas? The Ecuadorian government isn't going to give them any money. You know, their, their target audiences certainly aren't. So they were reliant on the American church-going public and it, 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 I guess it was a matter of, on, on, on their part, a matter of, of exposure and familiarization, uh, which took, took you know, several years. There was, a lot, there was initial resistance on the part of much of the evangelical church, surprisingly, um, to the use of radio in the early 20s. So the, the, the sequencing actually, it, it makes sense, I think, the timing. Uh, if you think that it was within a decade of when evangelicals went on the air in the U.S., um, What's more surprising is that it took another 15 years to really take off. For 15 years, HCJB was really the only shop, the only uh, show in town. That's more surprising to me. That, yeah. that requires more explanation um, than, than why it started when it did. And he had a hard time getting a license. And that's, the, that's another thing you have to, you know, it's, it, you know, you couldn't just go to Latin America and set up shop. And he sailed along the west coast of the country and approached several governments, and he was basically said, no, you're a foreign subversive. We don't want you in here. Uh, he was he, the only reason I mentioned this name, Ruben Larson. The only reason he was able to get into Ecuador was because he partnered with local Protestant missionaries who had been working there for 50 years in the in the Amazonian jungle and who had very good government contacts and who had basically, you know, bought credibility with the government through their social work. Otherwise, you know, he never would have been able to negotiate a contract. And that's something that we don't often realize is that setting up a station is a very very complicated affair. Even the U.S. government. In the 19, I know this because on something else I'm, I'm working on, uh, the U.S. government in the 1950s at the height of the Cold War tried to set up a global network of radio stations called the Radio Ring <clears throat> and had tremendous difficulty you know, getting site licenses and frequencies around the world. You know, even the, the, Ameri- you know, the most powerful uh, institute, you know, the American government, the most powerful force on earth. Um, so there are limitations and constraints that are, that are significant there. Um, I've gone on too long answering your questions. So. Thank you. No, no, I want to... Just keep my answer short. But that's a, that's a very good question. Yeah, I think this was sort of implied by some of the points that you made, but I'm wondering whether you thought the, that the technology itself, that is the radios, the radio receivers, lent weight to the message when they, when they brought these things into these yes, rural yes, areas. Yes, yes, yes. And yeah, no, this I is see. presumably a totally novel technology that they're yeah. not familiar with, and you know, suddenly they have this disembodied voice speaking to them. Thank you so much for saying that. No, I mean, there's, there, there's so much, there's, there's such a rich amount of material here. I mean, I didn't get a chance to talk about, uh, I mentioned at the end, this notion of mediation and, and how radio mediates the supernatural realm. And in, in animistic societies like West Africa, that is very, very powerful because it gives it this sort of magical aura. Aura is the wrong word because, you know, with Benjamin, that's associated with visual technologies. But, um, but to answer your question, absolutely. And particularly uh, in Latin America, uh, in Ecuador, where I studied it most closely, I think having a radio and owning a radio in your home 
is a tre- the, the, is, that's where the is a tremendous um, boost for the station, right? Because it's a permanent visible sign of the station's presence. The logo is on the, is on the thing. People want to own radios so they can be connected to the outside world, but also because there's some prestige associated with it. I mean, there is some survey data that I've seen in Pentecostal households uh, in in the 80s where people were asked to prize their most valuable possessions. And regularly, people listed radios as more important to them than their furniture or almost anything else in their homes. So the materiality of the radio was a tremendous asset to the station. And that's why giving these things away or selling them at very subsidized prices was a very effective strategy um, for not only getting the word out, but for gaining credibility and legitimacy. Um, if you're interested in that question more, I'm not trying to promote my own work, but I did just get an article accepted for publication in Church History, which is a, a journal that looks at world Christianity, and it develops this point further with respect to HCJB and <clears throat> the radio circle in the 1950s in Ecuador. So I, I, I think that's a very, very good question. Yeah, I think just to follow up on that quickly, yeah. the, I mean, some of the images you showed, it's sort of implies the, the radio receiver itself as a, as a stand-in for some kind of religious icon or something like that. And, and well, I'm wondering, is that, was that intentional then, is the follow-up question, where the evangelists that were going in here doing that, did they have that in mind when they... When I don't they think began? they thought of it as, in, in, as a visual icon so much because it's a long tradition, as you know, of iconoclasm within Protestantism. Well, that's also maybe changing with television. Um, but no, I don't. I, I don't think that it was a visual thing so much. Um, I think it was more a, sort of, as I say, this, this notion of prestige, this notion of being connected to you know, the outside world, to the West, um, things like that. Um, I'm trying to remember something else that you jarred my thinking on. It'll come back to me that I wanted to say, but I, uh, it'll it'll come back to me. I'm sure. So I've got another one. Mm-hmm. Um, some of your comments in the conclusion intrigue me, um, specifically with respect to um, your sort of current struggle over, uh, I forget exactly how you phrased it, mm-hmm. but uh, sort of the uh, legitimacy of uh, this, this particular evangelical message as a religious message or um, questions about whether or not it represents uh, more of an ideology or a hegemony. Um, I'm curious, especially in the context of having you say that uh, the, the, examining the cultural angle is, is less emphasized in your work, what role that plays in your thinking and let's say you came to the conclusion that this was a, a very um, imperialist uh, or, or uh, aggressive um, move on the part of the broadcasters, how would that influence your conclusions? Well, I think let me let me answer that um, by by telling an anecdote, which I think would be would be indicative, and I hope I don't get into trouble because this is being recorded. Uh, I, I won't I won't mention the person's name. Maybe I should maybe I should play it safe. A very senior scholar, um, who a radio scholar who was at the University of Michigan. That's all I'll say. I won't go any further than that. Okay. Um, was on a panel with me, or she, she commented on the panel when I was presenting some of my work several years ago. And afterwards, when we were talking, she, she said to me, you know, I find your work fascinating, but I'm glad that you're doing it and not me, because I could never do what you're doing. I find it so distasteful. Because 
when she heard this story, right, what she saw more than anything else was control and manipulation. So I think if I had that lens, I think if that was my interpretive lens, right, if that was my, my heuristic, I think it would make it very difficult for me to do this. Um, <laughs> because I would see, I would see these, 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 um, these evangelicals not as hucksters, but as just, you know, very cynically as manipulators. Um, so I, think, I, don't, I don't think I really think that. I think that, I think that religion is, is a legitimate form of self-expression. Um, but I think I have to come to grips with how to address that issue because it's, a, it's an issue and it's a concern that is uppermost in the minds of certainly of many scholars um, and certainly post-colonial studies. I mean, in, in the whole interpretive approach to this kind of subject. So I have to figure out how I'm going to really wrestle with that. It's not that I, I don't dismiss that perspective. Um, I think it's too one-sided uh, because I, I think it doesn't give enough agency to the audience in the end, I guess. I think, you know, because ultimately if you believe in hegemony, you know, you're, you're, you're deciding what is true in false consciousness, aren't you? I mean, you're the one that's saying, you know, these people are being deceived, they're being fooled. Um, it's, it's a very, it's, it's a question I encourage all of you to think about, because no matter what you're working on, you know, these kinds, this, this question, hegemony, whether it's religion or other, some other form of cultural hegemony, you know, wherever there's control, this is going to, this issue's not going to be far below the radar. And you've got to, you know, you've got to come, you've got to wrestle with this thing, with this issue and come to grips where you stand on it personally. So I don't reject, I don't reject religion outright. Um, I come out of an evangelical background. I don't I mean, I, I, I don't play that up, but I, nor am I ashamed of it. Um, so I've seen sort of both sides of the fence. Uh, I've seen the good side, but I've also seen what I can do to people. So it's, that's a great question. Um, in terms of um, agency of the audience, you said that they try to exert their control by pre-tuning the sets, mm -hmm. but I am still wondering if, they, if you know any anecdotes in which they did use it in a different way than it was. No, I do. I do know anecdotes, but they're hard to come by. That's what the problem of using broadcast resources is that you really have to, you really have to work at it. Um, you have to do sort of what Clifford Geertz called thick description, right? You have to sort of really immerse yourself in the milieu and reconstruct it painstakingly from sort of secondary sources, other places. So you, know, you get bits and pieces. You get, you know, you get statements like, um, you know, at conferences, one of these evangelical broadcasters made a very dismissive remark about uh, African, tribal Africans, because they took transistors out of their radios and used them for, for jewelry or for earrings, you know, very condescending. But it was a problem. I, I know from reading between the lines that the, 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 it was a problem because a lot of, of, of listeners would retune their radios. And so the problem of tampering um, shows up in the literature uh, that are in the sources, which means that it's, it's happening enough that it's the thing they've got to worry about. So what they do is they try and make the radios tamper-proof. That is, they, they close the backs up, so if you open the backs up or if you, if you, if you tamper with the tuning mechanism, tuning device, you'll destroy the radio. So there's, 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 <laughs> there's not a lot of trust there. But, but, but what's interesting is I mentioned to you how, how I've already, you know, in, in the recent past, just in the brief amount of time that I've been able to look into it, developed some interesting contacts. I talked to a guy just a month ago that I met at a conference who was from um, West Africa. And he talked about growing up, how his father, because he always had problems with batteries dying, how he had some, I don't know exactly how he did it, but somehow he took the battery out of the radio and, and let it sit out in the sun on aluminum foil. 
and it would recharge the battery so they got an extra hour out of it at night. Now, I've, I've got to email him and find out more details about what he means by all this. But it's an example of, you know, I would call that ingenuity and innovation, whereas a missionary broadcaster would call that tampering, you know. So they had this built-in sort of prejudicial filter that, that looked at Africans as being technical, technologically illiterate and backwards um, and dis, you know, sort of dismissed them a priori as, as, as not, you know, not knowing what they were doing. What I'm getting at is I think if I begin to scratch below the surface, right, if I can begin to, to go over there and talk to people, I think my work is going is to sort of completely change because, you know, it's so hard when you're only seeing one side of the story. Um, even though I try to give voice to the audience, right, and agency, it's just, I recognize, I don't make any bones about it. What, what, I, what I try and do is be upfront and say this is a producer story, right? This is a, this is a producer account based in, in broadcaster archives. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I, I have a, another question, if I may. Did anyone else? Um, as, a, as a historian, I'm wondering, um, you're, in, um, you're looking at places that have strong oral traditions, and I'm wondering if any of those have an impact on how you sort of gauge reception. You talked about your methodology and how at times it's problematized, and I wonder if looking at some of those historical oral traditions um, helps you work in any way, or if you've considered that at all. Um, I'm not sure what you mean. So oral traditions that are written down? Oral traditions in terms of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and these, uh, you mean sort of doing oral history? Oral histories, yeah. yeah. Do you mean uh, well, local oral history, sort of going to, to yeah. places like West Africa? Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's the kind of thing I'm open to. I mean, the question of whether you do oral history or ethnography is a, you know, one of these um, methodological questions that I would have to wrestle with. No, and how and and, and uh, what you know what approach I'm going to take to if I were to 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 go overseas and do this work, you know, would my approach come out of a media studies background, the way media studies people approach audiences? Would it come more from a sort of anthropology background? Because I, I am an STS, which is you know which clo- works history and sociology and anthropology all work closely together. Um, or it might it be an you know a, a, an approach based more on oral history, which is arguably more akin to what I'm doing. Uh, I guess at this point, I don't really have an answer to that, but I, I, I'm more and more leaning towards media studies, um, towards trying to understand an, uh, how, how media studies scholars approach audiences and build on that. I think that's, that's sort of the direction, I'm, because I want to capitalize on the resources, quite honestly, that I have here, not the least of which is uh, Henry Jenkins and others. But So you have to be sort of pragmatic about how you go about it, um, but uh, these are the kinds of questions I'm wrestling with. I have one last question, if you guys will just humor me. I'm sorry. I know it's been a long day. Um, yeah. What is the future of, of this um, radio and evangelicalism? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know the right term. But mm-hmm. what is the future in terms of how new media is spreading and have now so many other methods? of? Well, the, the future is, you know, you know <laughs> wherever new media is heading, evangelicals are right are right there. I mean, it's, it's there on the internet. There, you know, I mean. It, so you see radio use decreasing. Oh, uh, how is radio comparatively? Yeah. Um, no, I think radio is finding new niches. I think radio is becoming well. Th- these organizations are becoming increasingly internationalized, which means they're being run more and more by local stations overseas. They're diffusing more and more into low power stations outlets and FM in particular. Um, well, as you know, I mean, there's always a, there's always a place for radio. I don't think it's completely done away with, um, but it's it's a place in a multiple 
you know, along with other multiple media. Uh, so I don't see it disappearing, but it doesn't. It won't have the. It doesn't have the prominence um, that it used to. It, it's, it's, it has prominence in communities that don't have access to newer media, like um, you know, the internet or television. In those sort of closed communities where I mentioned these pre-tuned radios are still being distributed, there it's, they're still a captive audience. But uh, in areas, major cities, you know, where people basically have electronic access, um, you know, radio is a one among many tools. So I find myself listening to you. I guess my question is more or less has to do with localization, but I found myself thinking about the parallel to the agitprop trains the Bolsheviks created in Russia after after the revolution, which traveled the hinterland by train, showing mm-hmm. movies, collecting footage, and having live presentations. And I guess the two parts of the parallel I'm wondering about. The first has to do with liveness. That is how, how evangelicals may have combined mediated messages with live activities abound them mm-hmm. once you assemble those crowds together. Yeah. Yeah. And the other is whether there was any attempt to hear voices from one village and carry them to the other the way that the Bolsheviks said were carrying information from one town to the other through their agitprop activity, or was this understood entirely in terms of Western voices projected into Africa as opposed to talking to African churches or Latin American churches or, or whatnot that may be springing up along the route of these radios? Well, this is a good example of how, you know, uh, working in a media studies environment can begin to to infl- influence or infiltrate your thinking, influence your thinking in a positive way. Um, this concept of liveness is not one that that I'm really you know that I'm that I'm used to. It's not one that that uh, you know historians of technology use, but it's one that I think it's one that I think quite aptly describes what I observe going on. And I didn't get into it today because uh, I, I sort of limited myself to this community usage of radios. But one of the things that happens is that the missionary radio stations, excuse me, <clears throat> enlist local pastors and itinerant evangelists to distribute radios. And when they do that, they absolutely use radios to attract audiences, and they conduct church services. Um, well, they listen to the radio broadcasts, and when the broadcasts are concluded, they conduct church services, have all-night prayer vigils, etc. So absolutely, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a multimedia moment, you know, where... It's, it's live and broadcasts simultaneously, I mean, uh, in succession. So that is, that is very much going on. The other thing uh, that you mentioned about communicating between villages is also happening. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that because, of course, the, it's a question of transmission. The, trans, the broadcasts have to come from, from, uh, from well, Manila, the Philippines, but from Monrovia in Liberia. But what you do see happening is... Uh, members of individual tribes who often go to Bible schools or converted, get some language training, then go to the station and begin transmitting back to their own people. So that's what the, these missionaries are so good at, is, is producing these vernacular programs. Uh, and then these broadcasters go back to their villages, to church conferences, and meet the people. So there's a definite feedback loop where this is going on. So it's not... It is not just about Westerners or Americans communicating to Africans or, or Latin Americans or Asians. It's absolutely, it's much, much more complicated. Uh, and the other dynamic that's at work is that you've got other mission groups that are doing similar things in other parts of the, of the, uh, of the region who are then bringing studio programs that they've recorded or field broadcasts that they've recorded using remote studios 
um, that they then bring into the station, which is then broadcast. So it, it's no, both of those things are going on absolutely, and I think the using the, the concept of liveness is a, is a nice way to to break that down. Yeah, there was a CMS thesis done some years back about the Jesus Project, uh, or the Jesus Film, the Jesus Film Project, uh, and and they started the person who was studying it, Daniel, started out right. thinking it was about the film and it was about uh, the recorded. But as he got deeper and deeper into it, he realized it was about the context of the projection and the ways they would stop the projection and preach around it or have activities engaged around it. So it was about the hybridity between recorded or pre-recorded right. material and live material that he ends up focusing that Right, which is great on. because it's, it's an unexpected. It's something you weren't expecting to find. But no, but I think that's true. I mean, having, having observed the Jesus film myself in, when I was in Kenya several many years ago being broadcast... I mean, what you notice is that, that events like that, media events like that, attract crowds, and it becomes a platform. So it's not a simple either-or. It's, it's absolutely a both-and. Um, and it, in fact, it's, it's the live interaction in some ways that can be the most important. So it's important to realize that these multiple media coexist, in fact, reinforce each other rather than excluding each other. It's not, there, there's no exclusionary logic at work. Um, and I need to read that thesis because... It keeps on coming up. But the Jesus film is, a, and I didn't mention this in my discussion of global Christian media. I mean, that film has been watched by more people worldwide than any other film in history. There's over a billion people have seen that movie. Um, you know, so it's it's a it's a great example of this phenomenon. Yeah. I was just curious about mm-hmm. more about the repetition mm-hmm. because I mean, my big thing in kind of evangelicals, I collect uh, Christian tracks particularly Jack Chick tracks, and the one, like, their selling point in all the promotional materials that you read this once and it just happens. It's, you know, the first right. time you pick right. up a track, right. it's a... And the repetition thing seems very different than what I constantly hear from, you know, the printed media. And so I was just curious yeah. a little bit more about the repetition, but also, I mean, is it the same sermons? Do they broadcast the same sermons again and again, or is it just the same message over and over again. No, when they talk about repetition, they don't mean the exact same program, although they do, you know, they do repeat the programs yeah. because, you know, any, any radio station, the, the, the perpetual problem is filling up airtime. Mm-hmm. So, so they definitely would rebroadcast programs. But no, when they say repetition, as, I, as in that quote that I read, mm-hmm. it's the old, old story. You know, it's the basic truth with a capital T. Um, and by that I mean the evangelical message, you know, Jesus died for your sins and, you know, you need to repent and be saved. That's what they're talking about being repeated. Um, and uh, the question again was just remi- Well, just that it seems so different from right, okay. the, the printed, which right. kind of sells well, it Well, but on think a, about it this way. I mean, it, what, what, would, what would you want the printed thing to say? You know, well, conversion is a long-term, complex process that involves multiple causes. And, you know, if you meditate on this for a few months, maybe even years, then eventually you might decide to come around to this point of view. <laughs> I mean, that's not going to be a very effective... Uh, evangelistic tool, well, but but but, but 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 there is a, there is a tension there because even though the literature says that right, yeah. what they real I mean my experience has been from what I've read what they really think mm-hmm. they have a very deep understanding of the fact that that conversion even though you may push for it in a moment it it takes a long time and I think the the um, the, the the if you will the, the the wisdom of of evangelicals who you know make this their 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 preoccupation aligns with, I think, the general direction of scholarship. Uh, for example, there's a, a, um, the work of Louis Rambo, if you're interested in this, R-A-M-B-O, um, who's sort of the leading authority on the nature of conversion. Mm-hmm. 
um, and that is that, that, yes, you know, these conversion moments certainly occur, but they're like the tip of an iceberg, right? Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a, a lengthy process that's been going on beneath the surface. Uh, and we, we, you know, we don't see that iceberg because it's, it's invisible it's, you know, to the eye. Um, but I think evangelicals are much smarter than that. That's why people like Clarence Jones were so adamant that broadcasts be repeated, that pre-tuned radios you know, essentially provide the listener with the same message. They have, you know, I have quotes in this article that I just mentioned in Church History where they say, you know, the listener can hear the, will hear the gospel 14 times a day, seven days a week, you know, and they calculate the number of times a year they're going to be barraged with the message mm-hmm. because they somehow have this conviction that if you just hit people enough times, that gradually they'll at least become familiarized with the message, if not, if not actually open up to it. Well, I guess, I mean, since you're getting most of your, I mean, information from the actual broadcasters, they're also trying to sell their, you know, sell the, Mm -hmm. that they're doing it, raise money to send the radios, that this is a good cause, that it works, that it's effective, in the same way that the Chick Track promotional material is trying to get you to buy tracks and have them sent to various countries. So I was just kind of interested, what what is it about their radio programs that makes them do a different pitch? Well, perhaps because, as I, as I was suggesting when I was, you know, I mentioned uh, Patty Scannell in uh, particular. You know, he's, he's tried to talk about the nature of radio as a format, as a medium, with this 24-hour programming and the repetition that it provides. Um, it does create a sort of a, a you know, I use the word a simulacrum, it's the wrong word, um, a representation of reality, you know, that, that is very, can be very persuasive. And, and I think part of it is, you know, is, is that repetition of hearing things over and over again. It's, I mean, we're, we're human beings, right? We're, I think we, we rely to a certain extent on, on the structure that, that the familiarity that that provides uh, has, a, has a, a persuasive power. Um, and I, I think that's, you know, based on what I've read, that's what broadcasters felt. So. To follow up on that question, as, as you know, the evangelicals, there are a pretty broad range of yeah. beliefs. Absolutely. I'm wondering, there's some certainly strands of, evang- of evangelicalism that p- depends on the road of Damascus myth, where blinding light, intense mm-hmm. emotion, loss of control, the kind of charismatic side. And I'm right. wondering if, that's, if there's a schism, yeah. in a way, between the theories of conversion that maybe we'll be talking about here. Then would play itself out in terms of different media platforms and the theories. Well, and it's and exception. Yeah, and it's more complicated than that still because I've I've conflated things a little bit as one sometimes does in these kinds of con- contexts. You know, we have to make careful distinctions between different types of, of conservative Protestants. I use the term conservative evangelical as an umbrella term to include both, um, you know, so-called fundamentalists on one extreme, <laughs> and at the other extreme, charismatic Pentecostals have very, very different views of spirituality um, and arguably different views of conversion uh, and also embrace different media platforms. I mean, the Pentecostals are really good at television. I mean, that's their medium of choice. Uh, much more, I mean, not that evangelicals are, are bad at it, but, uh, you know, th- there's a certain historical logic and succession to the evangelical, conservative, conservative evangelical slash fundamentalist appropriation of radio during this time period and then sort of after 1980, uh, the Pentecostal appropriation of visual technologies, which do emphasize much more the immediacy, um, you know, the word of faith, you know, getting zapped, getting knocked over, um, having a manifestation of the spirits, um, getting slain in the spirit, uh, which, you know, lends itself much more readily to that kind of media technology, right? I mean, you, 
you can't, it would be hard in, on a television to, to sort of a television set or a television program to argue for this sort of a long durée, you know, uh, conversion view. Um, so I think you're right. I think there's a there's a lot going on here that that needs to get broken down. And, and I, I have, at least in my analysis of my description of these of these religious groups, I have sort of bounded them together because it would just be too complicated in a short talk like this to make all these fine distinctions, which are relevant and, and important nonetheless.